matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. That would be me, one Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco, and also my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. So, Todd, how are you on this awesome day? Well, uh, I was going to ask you how you're doing on this awesome day. I will say, without being further secretive, happy birthday to you, and uh, you're working on your birthday. What's wrong with that? Uh, thank you very much, Todd. Eh, like I look at it this way, just another day where you get to enjoy life, live it to its fullest. And uh, what is really even better, it's my parents' wedding anniversary today, which is their 54th anniversary. So that's even better. That's what turns me on today. Yeah, I saw the wonderful picture on Facebook. That's good. And they uh, still uh, uh, enjoying each other and enjoying life, which is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we got an interesting topic today. And definitely a guy that I'm really happy to have on our show that you got a hold of, Jeff Liberty, who is a very well-known media personality um, who's had over 25 years in the music industry, correct? Yeah, he's, um, you know, he's. we've been sort of friends on Facebook for a while, and he's, he's also like an artist relations person, so he does PR for bands and artists, and he's always sending me cool, cool stuff. And he has a radio show on CBC, so he's always playing uh, new artists and holding up their CD covers and saying, you guys got to check this out. So that's, that's really cool. Um, but then I kept noticing more and more stuff on his page about depression, and I'd see a picture of him with Clara Hughes, and they were you know, doing something for uh, Bell Let's Talk, and I thought, hmm, what's going on here? Something interesting's happening. So uh, the more I discovered, the more I realized that uh, Jeff has suffered from uh, some, some mental health issues over the years and is really just completely throwing the gauntlet down and opening the vault and saying, here's what's going on. Um, because again, as we talk to all of these people that are coming to us, like Joe, Joe Pantoliano and, and all these, our wonderful guests like Chris Ram are saying, let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. Let's have no secrets so that the more and more people, I'd love to see it become as socially acceptable as diabetes or, or, you know, uh, chronic heart disease or something. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, you look at depression per se itself, um, and a lot of people, you know, I, I think there's the stigma and the confusion around depression that a lot of people think, well, if you're depressed, it must be because you're sad, something bad must have happened in your life. And that's not necessarily the case because there is, you know, clinical depression. And, in, in, you know, if you look at, um, and I used to be a part of Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, used to work there as therapists uh, back in the day, back in the 90s as well as uh, facilitate support groups for them and then be a member uh, a member of their board. And what was really interesting is even them today, uh, Canadian Mental Health Association cite that approximately 8% of adults will experience major depression at some time in their lives. And what we're talking about is major depression in the fact that it's not a sadness thing, it's something that literally bottoms you out. And it could be months, even years, and it could be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain which could, you know, progressively get really, really bad and debilitate somebody. And furthermore, 20% um, of all Canadians 
uh, and you know we can take this right across the board, Todd, to the states as well. Basically, one in five people will personally experience a mental illness in their lifetime, and usually that mental illness is unfortunately depression, anxiety, and if you want to take depression even further. Um, Bipolar is a form of depression. It used to be called manic depression, and 1% of Canadians suffer from that. And as we were talking about with Chris a few weeks ago, he, he doesn't want it referred to as bipolar. He's more comfortable calling it uh, manic depression. Um, and in my own experience with it, uh, learning about it, uh, I think either one really applies. Um, you know, having the mania and having the depressive swings. Um, and then having that described as bipolar, you know, going in two different directions. So I, I'm comfortable with it either. I guess it's really up to the person. And I guess maybe that's Chris's thing where maybe he there's a stigma attached to bipolar versus manic depression. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's, it's certainly not a life sentence. No. And, you know, and it's I think you're looking at the earlier it's identified, uh, the earlier it's diagnosed, because there's various types of um, depression, which would fall under the mood disorder spectrum, anywhere from dysthymia, cyclothymia, um, bipolar, which, you know, mentioned uh, manic depression, uh, to situational or, you know, depression based on something that has happened, a change in your life, to seasonal affective disorder. But as you said, Todd, it does not have to be a lifelong sentence. However, the earlier affected, it's better. Um, and bottom line is, it's estimated that roughly 10 to 20% of Canadian youth are affected by a mental illness or a disorder, which is the single most disabling group of disorders worldwide. And in fact, that there, you know, you look at this here, which is even interesting um, in gender diversity, 5% of male youth and 12% of female youth age 12 to 19 have experienced a major depressive episode that's uh wow yeah you know stats are are, are telling that that uh mental challenges i guess you know yes it's a chemical imbalance but i think it's pretty safe to say that life is is a little bit more hectic than it used to be we're all stressed out we're all trying to be you know three different places at the same time work you know, um, we're worried about keeping our jobs, paying our bills, keeping our kids happy. And I think, you know, our atmosphere and our environment plays into our mental health. You know, yes, it's a it's a chemical imbalance. But, you know, I'd like to know at some point in the future, you know, scientifically, does all of that change the chemical imbalance in our brain to cause depression? And I think that here, you know, lies the, the argument, the contrasting views on it, um, you know, whether you subscribe to the pharmaceutical slash medical model versus the more cognitive behavioral, uh, you know, thinking model. But, you know, what research now today has also shown um, that in Canada alone, 12 to 19 year olds are at risk for developing depression um, at a staggering 3.2 million individuals. And that's today's stat, Todd. And you have to wonder, you go, wow, why all of a sudden has that number gone up so high? 3.2 million Canadian youth, 12 to 19 years of age. And I, you know, I had asked the question as a professional, as a former practitioner, were those numbers always there, but just not diagnosed, not recognized? Was it known as, okay, persons is going through a phase? Or as you, you, know, you asked, you bring up the point what is causing these chemical imbalances what is it is it chemicals and food additives is it 
um, living conditions. Some people would say, well, it's vaccines. Others would say, then you take the flip side, dysfunctional families, uh, upbringing, lack of communication. I, th- with the exception of vac- vaccines, I don't want to get into that whole argument at this point in time, but I think it's everything. I really think if I look back at my generation, I don't personally recall any of my friends, and I had a lot of friends, dealing with any significant mental illnesses, not even not even sadness. It's just we, we ran, we played, you know, we didn't have video games, and I hate to sound like, you know, hey, back in my day, but, uh, you know, I think that's the way it was. I think we were just always busy. We always kept our minds occupied. We never got bored, hardly got bored. There was always something to do, and I find generally, and I don't mean this in a bad way, that kids today just seem to get really bored, and um, they don't have enough to keep them occupied, and life is, is difficult at times. And I don't know. It just seems to cause more... Um, stress in their lives these days. Absolutely. And when we return, we're going to have Jeff Liberty on our show, a celebrity for all intents and purposes that we'll talk about his depression. But before we go, just one positive note on depression. That Did you know, folks, that once depression is recognized, diagnosed, and treated, the help that an individual gets makes a difference 80% of the time for the people who are affected allowing them to get back to the regular activities almost immediately. And that is good news. Absolutely. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. We'll be right back just around the corner. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays, 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. And what is really mattering to us this week is a serious topic, folks, because at any given time, 20% of not only the Canadian population or the North American population, probably the worldwide population, is affected by a mood disorder called depression. 
Um, and having been in the field as a therapist back in the day, I worked with a lot of individuals who had depression. And in fact, myself, I, you know, I have felt it myself going through periods in time, um, through loss, uh, through changes in life, where it was mild, but boy, it can really be debilitating. And my heart goes out to anybody that really has had it seriously and who has it today. And we'll talk later that you can definitely get help, definitely call a mental health service provider. There's a lot of great services online, CAMH, Canadian Mental Health Association, and a lot of others. But with that said, we got a great guest. He is an Ottawa native who's now living in New Brunswick. Who? Why would he do that? <laughs> well, I was just, going to say the opposite, you know. <laughs> just do the opposite. And that would be Jeff Liberty, <laughs> who has been in the music industry for more than 25 years. And he has won multiple awards for his work as an artist manager and as a media personality. And he also was a CBC Radio One columnist, TV host, and music writer. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. And what haven't you done yet, my friend? I don't know. I, I've done everything, actually. I've had every job that you could speak of, you know. Uh, that's just from selling vacuum cleaners to uh, selling selling, selling door-to-door, -door, uh, filter queen. Yeah, those are really great, but they were, a, they were a fortune, so I didn't sell many, to selling frying pans. If you want it sold, I'm your man, apparently. And now you're selling bands in, in one part of your life, I guess. Yeah. So, yes, Jeff, absolutely. So you, you've been literally around um, the block a few times. <laughs> and with that said, how long have you had depression for? You know, was it a lifelong thing? And did you just one day realize, hey, there's something wrong with me? Um, or was it something that developed in time that eventually the symptoms got worse and then it became, got to the point where you couldn't function normally and then you realize, hey, I've got a problem here and I need help with well, it's funny because nobody used to talk about things like this when I was a kid. Like, nobody came to your school and talked about it, and uh, we didn't really know what depression was, let alone mental illness. And uh, so I'm not too sure during my, you know, my tween and teen years if I was depressed. I mean, I overall, I had a, you know, a good childhood. My environment was good and stuff, but... Um, I think I, I started on medication when I was in my early 20s, um, and that's when a family doctor uh, diagnosed me with depression. So that's kind of when I, I first had it. And then just because of circumstances in my life, uh, being environment and situational around that time, um, I needed medication. Uh, I, was, I was a victim of a very violent crime that happened, uh, a multiple murder actually, while I lived in Montreal and watched uh, family members die, and um, I was able to escape. I was supposed to be one of, one of those victims, but I was able to escape. So I think all that kind of compounded it as well. And uh, so I think that's kind of the first time I started realizing, obviously, that I had a problem, and that problem of depression and anxiety was only compounded by uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow, I can I uh, speechless after that. Um, I can only imagine. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, 21 years old, and I was uh, I had just gotten married, kind of a shotgun wedding in the sense that I got a girl pregnant, you know, and figured, well, that's what you do. You just get married, you do the right thing, and yeah. 
Um, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, it was actually her father that committed these crimes, and um, so it was it was a bad situation, and and that situation. When it first happened, too, I did see a psychiatrist once, but then I thought, I'm not, it was just too strange for me to kind of deal with, because I grew up, you know, being told to, you know, man up, and and I thought I could kind of handle it on my own, and um, that meant uh, not only medication, but um, self-medication, so, um, you know, I ignored the problem, basically, and uh, medicated myself. And, uh, yeah, it was, and then it was, it just became worse as the years went on. It, it's funny as, uh, as I hear you talk about the self-medication it seems to be, uh, what most people choose to do. Um, and, and coming from a family where there was a, a long history of, of self-medicators, um, through alcohol, that was the, the, the stimulant of choice or the depressive uh, medication of choice, um, I can understand that because, again, especially, you know, my dad's side, they're all, you know, uh, Western farmers, strong guys. Uh, you know, you don't cry. You don't open up. You don't talk. You certainly don't talk to some strange guy in an office about your feelings. You, uh, you, you do hard work. And at the end of the day, you have a couple of drinks because you've earned it. And, uh, and that's how you uh, cure yourself or that's how you deal with your issues. Yeah, and I, that's kind of what I did. I mean, I I just felt it was easier not to feel and uh, and be numb about it. And for some reason, I mean, I was always afraid, I guess, or scared of street drugs. But for some reason, um, alcohol seemed kind of like an easier way for me to whatever dull the the pain that I was in um, during the deep depression. And also, I didn't really even consider the side effects of the prescription medication I was on with the alcohol, for some reason it seemed safer to me than, um, you know, hard street drugs or something. Well, it's, it's all legal, right? I mean, some, some, some body has vetted this to be okay for the public to consume for whatever reason, whether it's enjoyment with food or whether it's uh, to numb the pain. I mean, so, yeah, we trust it. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, Jeff, you bring it up because one of the areas that I worked a lot with in the past was concurrent disorders. That's, you know, where the individual has, usually it is depression and an alcoholism problem. And they always used to be the chicken and egg phenomenon, which came first. The depression, uh, which then made the person drink to self-medicate to numb the symptoms, or did the person drink a lot? which alcohol is a depressant, which starts to affect the brain, the serotonin levels um, and the dopamine levels in the brain, which then leads the person to feel depressed all the time, and so then they become depressed. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting, as you were doing all this, I'm going to throw one out there. Did you also drink a lot of coffee then to do your rebounding? I'm a person, I'm, I'm an addictive person. Uh, I'm an addictive personality, so I don't do it, like when I'm exercising, I usually do it to the point where I hurt myself, <laughs> you know? So anything I do, I do, yeah, like I would I would do a lot in basically great amounts. So I would drink a lot of coffee, uh, definitely. I mean, now these are things that, like any other illness, I really uh, pay attention to. Like this is my one coffee that I'm kind of having today, and I try to... I try to live like with any other illness, you got to kind of take care of yourself. So I try to have a routine. I try to exercise more. Um, you know, even even the way I eat and stuff, I, I really got to kind of take care of myself. Otherwise, I will find myself slipping. And I kind of know the triggers now. 
you know, um, after kind of ignoring it for so long, you know, and I ignored it uh, for a decade, basically. Um, and at that time, too, during my first marriage, uh, because of the things my wife had went through, and we'd experienced other really tremendous losses at that time. And um, I think a lot of it really kind of compounded over the years. And, and we, you know, we were like adding gasoline to each other's fire and just ignoring these problems. And, uh, you know, it all ended in a head because, uh, you know, when it came down to it, I ended up or we ended up losing everything. I lost my house. I lost my kids to foster care, um, you know, and then I ended up at the Royal Ottawa Hospital, you know, where I, where the psych hospital in our nation's capital, which I spent for almost a full year. So, and that's only when I started really addressing these issues in a real way. You know, I had nothing but the clothes on my back. You know what, Jeff, I'm glad you bring it up because I was gonna ask you <clears throat> in my follow-up question, how did you know or when did you know that you hit your rock bottom or that was your rock bottom? But furthermore, yeah. <clears throat> as soon as you hit that rock bottom, what actually did you readily identify as your problem? That, hey, I've got an addictive personality that is leading to alcohol, drug abuse, or I'm depressed. How did you go about getting the treatment in the, you know, <clears throat> in the right manner, so to speak? Well, and it's funny, as soon as I was, my mother drove me to the hospital and um, I can't even remember a lot of this time. And my anxiety used to be so bad at that point that I even pass, would pass out. And um, at that time, I was really sick, you know. And, and um, so I remember actually, or don't remember, I'm told by friends that would visit. I only had a few friends, by the way, that visited because you find out who your friends and family are uh, when you have nothing. And um, uh, I... I, the first couple months, I was really heavily medicated in the hospital. And, uh, you know, I had friends, a couple of them, that uh, didn't give up on me, which is a fantastic thing because it's, you know, it, it's like being in any other, having any other disease, whether it's cancer or heart disease or anything like that. These are people that really stuck by me and understood that I was just really sick. And, um, they would tell me that I was not making any sense. I'd shaved my head and I wore like tons of rosaries around my head and neck. And um, I wouldn't make a lot of sense if the only time I read the Bible was in the hospital and I would quote the Bible. But as I started getting better um, and kind of realizing where I was and what, what position I was and how sick I was, because before, and this is something that a lot of people don't know. There's no logic to mental illness. Um, you can't, you know, say to somebody, you know, as you guys know, snap out of this or do whatever. It's part of the illness, um, and, and logic does not play a part in it. So as I started getting a little better and aware, that was kind of when I went, oh, oh goodness, i got to really get my, my act together here. i got to get myself better. So that took, like, months in the hospital of... Um, just actually really tremendous care when it came to being at the Royal Ottawa for myself and a few good friends that's, that kind of stuck by me, you know, um, when I, when I needed it the most. And they weren't like people that would kind of, you know, they were on top of me all the time, just like that nurse was, but it was always, it was always real kind of positive reinforcement. You know, they weren't beating me down. You're not going to beat somebody down with cancer. So you shouldn't do it with somebody with mental illness. 
and they were just there to make sure that I kind of, they saw the potential in me, you know what I mean? So that took months. And then when I started realizing it, that I had to get better if I was going to get my kids back because I was going to lose them into the foster system. That's when I knew I really kind of had to make a change. And I was started being aware of my triggers, you know, that would give me more anxiety or the depression would really sink in. And at this time, too, I was having, you know, uh, kind of manic things happening, too. So that was another thing that was a big part of what was going on. So... I guess, as you said, there's there's no logic, there's no timeline because everyone's different. I mean, everyone's physiology is different. Everyone, um, you, you had a pretty good reason, and that's your kids to sort of realize that hey, I need to get my stuff together and 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 get healthy. And I, you know, I know many other people that it takes them years. I mean, I can, I can think of one particular friend that it took them ten years to finally go through that process to realize, okay. I'm not able to do this on my own. I need help. I need some medication. I need some stability in my life. But it's it's good for you that it only took you a matter of months of constant care to realize that you couldn't do it on your own. Yeah, and I mean, to, to be quite honest, it's taken like years because right now, I mean, I'm able to talk about it, but I didn't for a long time. And I kind of consider myself in remission like any other disease and I'm well enough to kind of talk about it right now but I really just take things a day at a time um, I, I still take one pill a day that's all I take right now um, and I think it's a good thing I don't have very many side effects and you know like I said I try to eat well and live as healthy as I can <clears throat> excuse me and uh, so these are things that are you know really important to me but at the same time I think there's See, some of us, you know, because I was under suicide watch and I initially had a plan. And the hardest but most courageous thing I think you can do is get help. But it's also the hardest thing to do. And I never revisited my, when I was in that place where um, I wanted the pain to stop. And I really believe with suicide that it's not about people wanting to, wanting to die. They just want the pain to stop like any other disease. And they're kind of at their their wits end. So I'm really I'm really happy that uh, you know that I haven't I guess gotten that ill again. And it's it's with the support obviously of my my wife Cynthia and my new life together. We just celebrated our 11, 11 years together, and um, you know and some really good friends and just taking care of myself. You know I think that's been a really big thing. And just knowing the illness better than I ever have. So. Uh- I guess the question I want to ask you then, Jeff, is what worked for you? If you were to try to pinpoint one um, one best approach which helped you treat your depression or what was what you worked to overcome it, um, because this is what I want to get out there for listeners, the, this installation mm-hmm. of hope that they can hang or find something that worked for you, what would you say that worked best for you? Well, I've been doing a lot of talks lately, and the main part of, I think, my message is um, is I guess you know community as a whole, and and I mean that in a way that uh, I was lucky to have a few friends um, there for me at that time, and then family and stuff to follow through. But a lot of us don't have that. And uh, living in New Brunswick, for example, right now, as opposed to Ottawa, I mean we're in real we're in sad shape for mental health here in New Brunswick. 
And that's why I go out and, and talk. I feel kind of like a, a plane steward, just kind of showing everybody the safe exits and, you know, um, and where to go and ask for help. And I want people to know, too, and that's a big part, I guess, of conquering the stigma and everything. And what I did is that community is uh, the extension of family and friends. And I want people to know that they can reach out to somebody, like anybody. So when you really feel that there's there's nobody there to help you and you feel all alone, I think there's really help still out there. And that was a big thing for me is realizing that there was the help and that um, by getting by getting better and like I said, like people helping me get on track with a routine and when I got out of the hospital getting a, a job, which I never kind of had before because I had worked for myself mostly and all these things, just people there. And then just realizing that, you know, I could get better and that I wanted to, I wanted to live. I just wanted to get better and stay better, you know, because I've watched friends in the past uh, not have that opportunity. And there's, there's been, there's been things over the years that still perplex me about, about mental health and depression and things. And, you know, there's, I don't know, there's, I, I just feel like I'm one of the lucky ones and I, I reached out for help, you know, and I know it's a hard thing to do. It's incredibly hard, but it's also the bravest thing you can you can do to help to help yourself and to help your illness. It's funny that you mentioned that because I mean I, I've been nowhere near the circumstances you have, but there have been some close calls in my life, and I've I've often looked back and said, why am I still here? Why did I make it, and why did that person not? Um, and the only thing I can come up with is that I am left as some sort of legacy of this person. And I'm not taking any credit for their life or anything, but I'm just saying I'm here to sort of communicate and facilitate awareness around what they went through uh, to to make others aware of the dangers. And that's all I can come up with. But I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, yeah. do, do you do that? Do you reflect and say, why am I still here? Why did I make it when all those circumstances went on in my life? Well, yeah. And you know what, Todd, that's a funny thing. Not funny, haha, but a yep. funny thing in the sense that, um, you know, I never revisited, but it would happen to me when some, somebody tries to, I don't know, it's a hard thing to explain. It's like I don't understand other parts of, uh, I guess, the final stages of any other disease until you're in that place. And for me, it was kind of like I was on autopilot, like a light switch went on. And it's not because you want to, you're being selfish and you want to leave these people behind. It's just that I wanted the pain to stop. And that's where, you know, that's where I was. And um, like I said, I had a friend uh, that actually just interrupted what I was doing. And I, I never revisited it, thankfully. But at the same time, uh, there was this thing in the Huffington Post, and I can't remember the lady's name, but she was a mental health advocate. And they were talking about when when uh, Robin Williams lost his battle, and he she said, "Oh my God, he sneezed." And I thought to myself, "Well, that's it. That's kind of a great way to make people understand who don't understand that overwhelming thing that we can all understand, right? A sneeze, mm. how that kind of takes you over in the moment. I think that's what happened." And a really perplexing thing that I tell as part of when I go out and tell my story, and, and it's something I still don't have the answers to yet, is I had a friend. And this guy, it seemed like he had everything, you know, by all accounts, outside looking in. He had everything going for him, and he had, uh, you know, a great job, and uh, he was in a band, and he had a great place. And one Sunday night, he came home, 
and, um, and this was in Ottawa, and uh, he he lived in this beautiful condo, and he, every every uh, Sunday night, usually around six o'clock, he'd call his dad and tell him about the weekend and the week ahead and stuff. They had a really close relationship. He had lost his mom to cancer years before. And it was just another, you know, regular conversation, his father told me. And then a couple a couple uh, hours later, he was watching a movie with a few friends. And he used to leave the balcony open so if people wanted to go out for a smoke, they could do that. It was a beautiful summer evening. And he got up out of the blue in front of his friends and said, now I get it. And they were like, what are you talking about? It was just out of the blue. Mm. And he walked to the balcony and jumped off. Yikes. 11, 11 stories. What could we have done? Obviously, that man was in great pain. My friend was in great pain. What, you know, I still ask myself, what should I have done? You know what, and I'm glad you bring that up because that is a really cool point. And I'm saying cool not as, you know, in the cool, oh, hey, Fonzie, cool. What I'm saying is cool in the point that a lot of times people do take a cool approach to watching other people struggle with depression, struggle with anxiety, whatever mental illness it is. Um, and even the individual with the illness or the disease will come off as, well, trying to numb it and come kind of chilling it down that it's nothing too serious. How do you go mm -hmm. about really taking something serious or trying to inject yourself into another person's life who has depression? Um, Rather than, you know, pretending it's not happening, taking a cold approach to it, saying, hey, it's going to pass, it's just a phase, what do you do? You, you just jump right in there and say, hey, you know, just like you would an alcoholic, I think you have a drinking problem, I think you need help. Hmm. Well, I think it's important to um, talk about it. Like, I was in a high school and, you know, this, this girl that was cutting herself, um, she had a friend that saw that she had cut herself she was good at hiding it and she would she called the you know the mother and I think the guidance counselor and said she didn't want to know she didn't want to tell people who it was but she was just a concerned friend and this was happening because she knew her friend would be mad at her um, but she done this and I think she did it for all the right reasons you know and now this this girl was getting getting help and I was talking to her and you know, they, now it was just people were aware around her that she is fighting this battle. And, um, you know, because a lot of times we wear masks in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, and somebody could appear, just like my friend, whoever, um, that it's all good on the outside, but maybe, the, you know, inside, they're, you know, it, it's as dark as it can be, and they're in great pain. And so maybe that's something we should just maybe pay more attention to, I guess, in, in the people around us, you know. And that's whether it's friends, family, or, or anyone, you know. I mean, I, I still wonder what I could have done for that with that friend, you know. And this is kind of, you know, just my, my own story, you know. And um, I, I just think if it helps kind of one, one person in that crowd, and they talk about it, and I see it because people do contact me privately after, or come up and talk to me, and I think that's a really good thing. And I'm putting myself out there, like you said, kind of like an alcoholic, or any other thing, uh, you know, a drug addict or anything. Because even though it's hard to do at times, I think it's a it's a worthwhile thing to do as kind of one soldier, you know, in the fight against mental illness and depression. 
And I, I want to ask you too about you've got the hashtag liberties lost year and we'll talk about that in a second but yep. i want to ask you specifically about now one other part of your life where you are um, a publicity person for bands uh, i see lots of pictures of you out with bands and you're in bars how do you handle mm. how do you handle the alcohol how do you handle the the you know it's not as crazy it used to be you know i'm 50 and when you know we were doing stuff in the bars in the 70s and the 80s it was crazy and it's not quite that anymore but i'm still there, i'm sure there's still temptation there oh yeah i mean sometimes i'm on top of the world in the sense that i really feel that nothing can kind of penetrate me but you know it's a, it's a daily fight you know and um I host a lot of shows, present a lot of shows too, and there you. I'm, you're right; it's a lot tamer than it used to be, you know. But that that temptation, I guess, is always around, you know. And um, so, like, and there was times too. I had to tell people around Christmas, oh, I, I really couldn't go to that because I just knew I'd be in a situation where, you know, there would be a lot of that around me. And um, uh, plus, it's just really strange being in a a group, being the you know the guy that's the only guy making sense too <laughs> drinking sprite and making but, sense yeah exactly but i think that you know like i said it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing struggle i mean every day you know i'm happy today there's a big blue sky outside you know and i i'm just trying to uh take advantage of every wonderful moment you know my my daughter's graduating this this week and i was at her prom and i i just take all those all of those moments, you know, as really, I think, a lot more special and important um, than they than I think they would have been initially, right? Like, I don't take anything for granted, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, who knows what tomorrow brings, but today's a great day. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, you know what, I could have put it any better. And I think it's almost you take the same premise that a lot of uh, individuals in recovery for alcoholism and drug abuse would say one day at a time. We're almost out of time, Jeff, and I don't want you to go before you can kind of reach out to our listening audience and offer your infinite wisdom on anything that they're going through. Uh, if you were to be sitting across from them, what advice would you give them? And also, if anybody wanted to learn more about you um, or get a hold of you, how would they go about doing that? Well, I don't know about infinite wisdom. My wife will uh, tell you otherwise. She's the, she's the one with the infinite wisdom. Um, and But I think, yeah, I mean, as far as Liberty's Lost Year, you can find it on Facebook, hashtag on Twitter. Um, I'm an easy guy to find, but on Facebook, there's a page to like and, and the talks that I do and so forth um, and a little bit of my story there. I do a lot of events, too, like music events uh, that raise a lot of uh, awareness and and desperately needed money for mental health here but um i think whenever i'm talking to anybody i you know everybody's kind of got a story and everything's kind of relative to their situation and i think the most thing the best thing you can do is just be there for somebody and it's not going to be an easy thing i have a, a friend in the hospital and not with mental health issues but other issues and it took everything you know for me to go visit this friend uh, recently, because who wants to go to a hospital, right, and be around things that are kind of negative and uncomfortable things that we don't want to deal with, right? So, but I knew that my friend also needed me, and um, I knew that I needed to really see my friends. So, I just, I just went and did it. I just, 
I just want to be there for for him and and uh, we need to be there for each other. I think that's the biggest thing and just tell each other that we're there, you know. And um, some days it's gonna it's gonna like hurt like hell, but know that you're not alone, and that you can reach out. And there are things available, resources, obviously professional resources in our communities, but uh, and mobile health too. But also there's just people out there, you know. And you need to talk to somebody, and it could be a really hard thing to do, but there is going to be somebody out there that that understands it's going to be there for you, you know. And I think that's, I think the big message. Yeah, and I think too from someone that's been involved from the other side supporting someone with uh, with mental illness, I think we need to take care of ourselves too because we need to be strong for ourselves and also for the person that that's uh, struggling um, because we we really need to extend ourselves and it, you know it's never easy you know it's not I'm, I'm not saying it's easy to uh, to help no. someone through and in fact it's very hard but um, you know I think. The person that is supporting or the family or, or the, the social network really needs to get help for themselves and also educate themselves about what the person's going through so that you can better support them. Because if you're just sort of guessing what's going on or trying to just use old techniques, it's just not going to work. Yeah, and it's hard to be a caregiver. And like you said, uh, you know what? We're all in this together after all. So um, the more we realize that, you know, the better, you know, the better for us all and our mental health. Absolutely. Still doing those um, uh, shows on CBC Radio? Yeah, CBC Take Liberty, they're called. And uh, you can check, yeah, you can check them out online. They're, they're there as a podcast and stuff. And I love doing them. You know, I love music. It's a big part of my therapy. So, yeah, it's, it's a great uh, it's a great legal drug for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeff Liberty, thank you for joining us today and telling us and sharing oh, your thank story. You. Thanks for having me, Todd and Peter. Have a good Anytime, one, Jeff. More Matters of the Mind uh, just around the corner. Stay with us. We're just going to take a short break. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. 
Each chapter covers a different type of landmark, which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything matters each and every week on your mind to us and as we always suggest we encourage if you have any ideas for show topics any mental illness uh, topics subject matter you'd like to discuss social relationships addictions please keep the emails coming to me uh, Facebook me or on Twitter or to Todd Miller we always love to hear from you and somebody we always love to hear from is Ellen Campbell from the Canadian Center for Abuse Awareness abusehurts.ca hello Ellen how are you today I'm great, Peter. How are you? I am awesome. Um, good, good. One of the things I wanted to ask you uh, right from the get-go, um, somebody had sent in a message to me, is they wanted to know about infant abandonment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the program that you have uh, with that um, and how individuals can get involved if they were inclined to. Oh, okay. That would be great. Well, um I just found out many years ago that babies, these are full-term babies that are just thrown in the garbage, they're left in the woods, um, in uh, dumpsters, whatever, and of course they die. And I found out that the babies would just go in an unmarked grave and no one would acknowledge that they even existed. So for me, that was a really early stage of abuse. And it was very important to me that these babies were acknowledged, that they mattered, that they existed, and even if they took a few short breaths, they were part of our community. So um, Elgin Mill Cemetery uh, donated a beautiful garden plot for us, and when we, for instance, we buried a little girl about six months ago that was left in a park, they actually in a drain, drainage in a park, and um, so we named her, we always named the babies. We have a service, a non-denominational service, and then we um, have a monument where we put the baby's name on the monument. And uh, the service is beautiful. Elgin Mill Cemetery have been amazing. They don't charge us anything. They even release doves at the funeral. I mean, it's not a, it's not a secondhand funeral. It's the very best they could do. So um, I'm hoping we won't have to bury anymore. We have nine plots, and each plot holds five babies. It's a beautiful little area. They, they donated a bench as well. But what we are trying to do and where your listeners could get involved is there is a law in the United States called the Safe Haven Law. So a woman can take a baby to a hospital and not be charged with abandonment. 
And so in the last 10 years, for instance, they have saved over 2,000 babies. I just keep getting little notices. I just got one the other day, another baby rescued. Um, and they've even got it so that it's on the ambulances. So there's a number on the ambulance, and the woman can call. The ambulance comes, picks up the woman, takes her to a hospital as Jane Doe, no costs, and babies. Sometimes even reunited with the mother. She might have just been in a, a panic or some you know state that wasn't good at the time. Um, so I'm trying to get that legislation here in Ontario. I haven't had much luck up to now, but our current MPP, Chris Ballard, is seriously looking at it. And I think it's because he came to the last funeral. And when you see that little pink coffin, I don't think anybody can sit there and not be touched by how senseless it is and that we could be able to save some of these babies if we just made it legal for a woman to take a baby and leave it. I know Chris's brother, so <laughs> I'll put some pressure on him. Not not in a, oh, okay. not in a bad way, but I think it's uh, I think it's an important thing. So uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you a legal question. Uh, do you have any knowledge of this law? Like, what are the ramifications, and why are why are women afraid to do this? Like, is there jail uh, involved if they do this? Uh, well, it it the, the ironic thing is, is the criminal code actually says as long as you leave a baby in a safe place you will not be charged. Unfortunately, the hospitals and the police, the sort of the policies and procedures aren't in place. So the hospitals have to know they can accept the babies. The police have to. I, I went and I met with the Attorney General and he said, no, the criminal code says it's fine. The provinces uh, have to really just get the legislation in place. So it's, it's not like they have to create a law. They just have to bring some policies and procedures in place. I have not had much luck in the past with the provincial government, um, but since Chris Ballard has, you know, come on board, um, he's been amazing in many areas. And so he, he has to really look at it, too. I don't know why it would be so difficult. To me, it's a no-brainer. If it sounds but like it's... The last government just kept uh, passing me on to somebody else. If it sounds like it's legal, which it is, but it's just putting policies and communicating those to frontline health workers and, and EMS staff, I don't find that to be an onerous task. No, you wouldn't think so. But the last government, they sent me to the um, the federal government and the federal government sent me back and it's just been a long process. But uh, as I say, right now, Chris has been, you know, very, very uh, serious about looking into it. But he's, for instance, World Health, um, the World Health Organization did not support Safe Haven. And their reason being that it has to do with the rights of the father. Well, to me, that just makes absolutely no sense because at least if a baby is kept alive, the father has a chance to have a baby or see his baby. But it, if the baby's dead, what does the father's rights have to do with it? I mean, he, he has no baby. And there was an interesting incident, actually, in Calgary a couple years ago where a man was walking by a dumpster. He heard a baby cry. He pulled it out, and it was in a plastic bag. It would have died. It turned out it was his baby. And his girlfriend had had two previous pregnancies, but no baby. So she was actually charged with murder. And, um, you know, so it's... It's a, it's an unbelievably useless sense that so many people would love a brand new baby. 
that I, I, I don't know. So if your listeners want to get involved, by all means, contact me. I mean, we're just letters to the MPPs um, would be great. Even it doesn't have to be Chris Ballard. It could be whoever their MPP is, because the more pe- more support Chris has going forward, the better. And and he hasn't promised a hundred percent to do it, but he is seriously looking at it. Absolutely. So so you got the information there for those that were interested in learning more about it. We only have actually two minutes left, Alan. Time is this uh-huh. Um So with that said, in a in a briefly, do you find that it's the the kids having kids is one of the main issues a lot of youngsters having babies that they're not ready for it is this what is the root cause of a lot of this yeah sometimes like one of the baby before this one was a little chinese girl that she was only 15 and they found the baby in the suitcase and she went back to china she went back to china and if she comes back here of course she'll be charged with murder but she was she panicked you know she was 15 years old and i think in that community with whatever she was ashamed and panicked so if she had known that she could you know take the baby to the hospital so a lot of it's going to be once it is you know in place a huge awareness campaign to let people know that that this is available to them and before we let you go we're having you again next week can you tell us about i was uh checking out the site you have a summer bash up and coming for people that want to get involved with that the Summer Bash in August, yeah, yes. that's, uh, Jennifer Beale holds that every year. It's about a 1,000 people business. It's really a business networking um, event, so anybody that's in business that wants to network, Jennifer has supported our agency, so she allows us to come for free so we can connect with everyone. It's, it's the biggest networking event in the city, and it's down at Club Atlantis in Toronto. I've been to that, and uh, it's, been, it's incredible. It's really a great way to network, and uh, I'm glad to see that you're getting some great exposure from it. Yeah, we are. Jennifer's been a huge supporter of ours. That is great. And so if Todd wanted to come, he, you guys would kind of put him in a suitcase and bring him there, hide him away? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just let me know, Todd, if you're coming. By all means, um, we'll, um, I'd love to meet up with you there. Yeah, Todd uh, is from the Niagara area, um, and Todd is always raring and willing to step up to the plate and do great things for the community. And as I said, if you've got him in the suitcase, you probably got all of his brochures and pamphlets, and he's always ready to go. A man okay, on a mission. Well, one quick thing, too, we, and we can talk about it more next week, but we are starting to take furniture uh, in our program to help uh, women or men you know, coming out of difficult situations. So maybe next week I can talk more about that. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Ellen. And she is with the um, Abuse Hurts, the Center uh, for Abuse Awareness. And it's a great organization. And as I say, folks, always, we should always opt to take a zero tolerance on abuse. All abuse is wrong, no matter the race, the gender, the religion, or the age of a person. Say no to abuse. Thank you so much for joining us, Alan. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for your support. Great show. Thank you. More Matters of the Mind right around the corner. Yeah.
welcome back to Matters of the Mind, and that is a wrap, folks. So I hope you tune in next week. We got a tremendous guest who is going to talk about children's television, and who better than the one and only Mitch Markowitz, one of the creators of the greatest considered Canadian children's show called The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Oh, they gave me nightmares. No, it didn't. It was just a fun show. It was so quirky. It was so cool uh, and fun. I mean, you just, you just laughed and uh, good music. They're always playing good music and the hilarious talent of uh, Billy Van, R.I.P. Absolutely. Too bad Billy Van was not around today. By or none. Definitely uh, Canadians, Canada's greatest talent. And in fact, what I learned from Mitch was that Mike Myers was so inspired by the show, the Mike Myers, you know, as in Austin Powers, watching that show growing up, that Mini-Me uh, was, I, I believe, loosely based on the Count and the nephew of the Count, the Mini-Count. Wow. That's, that's interesting. We'll have to get uh, Mike on the show to talk about that. <laughs> Well, so, that's a wrap, folks. So, see you same time, same bad channel next week, 8 p.m. Hope you tune in. Catch up with Jeff Liberty at Liberty's Lost Year, and of course, the CCAA at abusehurts.ca. You can catch up with us at Listen Up Talk Radio. We are worldwide. Catch you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com, or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no pills. That man is not your man. And that's why I'm